very warm welcome back to Embracing Your Mortality podcast with me, Sue Brain. I'm delighted to introduce you to this new format, which will be spotlighting one guest a month talking about what it means for them to live more consciously for a better world during these increasingly turbulent times that we're all living through. So just make sure you sign up so you don't miss any of these remarkable global influencers speaking with such sense and clarity and vision. Without further ado, I'm so delighted to be joined by my first guest, Ros Savage, MBE, PhD, <laughs> prolific author, solo ocean rower, and courageous spirit who is passionate about finding positive alternatives that can help us to navigate our way through our present global, political, and social upheavals, which of course are set against the backdrop of environmental calamities that climate change is creating. Roz is the first and so far only woman to row solo across the world's big three oceans, that's the Atlantic, Pacific and the Indian Ocean. She holds four Guinness World Records and was given her MBE for fundraising and raising awareness about environmental issues particularly plastic waste. Roz, welcome. Thank you, Sue. That was a, <laughs> a, quite an introduction to live up to. Um, it's wonderful to be here with you and an honour to be your first guest. And um, wow, I guess I'll just do my best. Here you we do go. your best, you always do. So your new book, An Ocean in a Drop, Navigating from Crisis to Consciousness, has just been published. So so many congratulations. It's had some incredible reviews. But before we talk about your book, I want to ask you about why you've dedicated your life to tackling such challenging situations. When did all this start for you? Mm, I was a bit of a late starter, actually. I had a very conventional background for the first 30 some years of my life, living in my London yuppie bubble, being a management consultant. And then Around about the year 2000, things really started to shift. I felt like there was something more to my life here on this earth than being a management consultant. Nothing wrong with management consultancy, just wasn't what I feel like I'm here to do. So I, I quit my job and, well, actually pretty much blew up my life completely <laughs> and um, set about trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up. So I had an environmental awakening uh, via a trip around Peru for three and a half months. And amongst many other adventures, I saw the, the retreating glaciers there and really woke up to climate change and also all of the many other things that we're doing to our beautiful and precious earth. And desperately wanted to do something to raise awareness of these issues, needed some kind of a platform and received this crazy call to adventure to row across these big three oceans using my wow. adventures to raise awareness through my blogs and my talks and my books and luckily just around about that time well I say luckily they were inventing social media uh, before it all became rather toxic it really helped me to amplify my message. And so off you set how long did it take you to complete all three oceans? 
It was a seven-year project, as it turned out. Yeah, did the Atlantic one year, failed on the Pacific the next year, <laughs> then had three successful stages across the Pacific over the next three years. And then finally, the Indian Ocean, which was my longest non-stop voyage, even though the Pacific is bigger. I spent five months alone at sea on the Indian That's Ocean. That's a long time. It's a long old time. Yeah. And, and sort of what did you really bring back with you? What was the sort of most pressing thing that you wanted to share with everybody? What did I bring back? I brought back a whole new me. (laughs) Um, It really did change the way that I see myself and particularly made me a lot less intimidated by big, daunting, seemingly impossible challenges, which is really quite an amazing privilege. I feel very lucky to have had those very testing experiences Mm. I know you saw some pretty full-on things particularly around the plastic in the oceans and how distressed that you were about that how do you feel that that when you brought that back where did you go with with the knowledge that you had how did you put that out into the world well I suppose at the time that I was actually doing the rowing I was actually very naive about what's involved in change I thought that because when I'd found out about the environmental crisis, it had changed everything for me. So looking around, I thought, gosh, well, clearly other people don't know about it. And if I just tell them that we have a crisis, then they'll change too. But what I've learned over the years since I finished throwing, so that's 11 years now, it's so much more complicated because we inhabit the social structures and these narratives about who we are. We're told that we are consumers rather than citizens, that we're here to buy stuff, that stuff will make us happy. And all of the messages that we get from advertising and even to some extent from our politicians, it's all about economic growth, both individual and collective. And it's so hard to create Mm. change when those other messages are just being reinforced hundreds of times Mm. every day, everywhere that we turn. So that's really what the book is about, is about how we can't fix our environmental issues without really looking at our environmental model and our political systems and even our own psychological and um, neuroscientific inclinations. Change or conscious change is really hard. Mm. I mean, the world is changing all the time, but it's trying to be intentional about that and say well actually where are we going and is that a good place to go to or do we need to somehow change course yeah I mean I know you speak about how we humans have utterly lost our way and have turned sort of we've turned into this kind of like a unique species that has learned to destroy its home and I find that such a distressing thought and it's true and I think a lot of people realizing this but kind of feel impotent to do anything about it so how do you feel your book can help people to to really look at that and how do we do things differently well on the one hand it is true that we seem to have lost our connection with nature we have lost our way and at the same time I really love humans most of my best friends are humans I'm not quite sure about (laughs) all of them (laughs) uh, I think we we are we're capable of such amazing things we are so creative and so inventive and capable of so much compassion and connection and 
unfortunately, I think that our natural inclinations have been a bit subverted. And, you know, this saying about the media that if it bleeds, it leads. So the yeah. media tends to reinforce the worst possible version of humanity. And that's not my lived experience. When I see my friends or talk to my neighbours, I see decent people who really care about each other. But we don't mm. hear about that in the media very much. So what do I think we can do? Well, there are so many different ways I could go with this, but I suppose at its simplest, I'm going to use a sort of ocean rowing analogy. Uh, when I was setting out on my first ocean, the Atlantic, I got completely overwhelmed. I looked at 3,000 miles of open ocean ahead of me, and I was going at slower than walking speed. And I just became, I completely freaked myself out. I, I just thought it was going to take me absolutely forever to get to the other side. And I started skipping rowing shifts and became very demoralized, even quite depressed out mm. there. And what I learned by the end of the Atlantic and really put to good use on the later oceans was it's so important to take what I call the bifocal approach. So, you know, bifocal glasses through the top half of the lens, it's for long sight. So through the top half, you're keeping an eye on your goal, the long-term vision. And then through the bottom half of the lens, which is for near work, I focus on what do I need to do today, right now, to get a little mm -hmm. bit closer to that long-term vision. But I found that if I try to think too much about everything that needs to happen between here in the short term and there in the long term, I would just become completely demotivated mm. and hopeless and helpless. And I think that's where a lot of people feel completely overwhelmed by the magnitude. And it isn't just, you know, it's not just climate change, is it? I mean, it's the whole of the world is sort of beginning to crumble around our ears. And how how do we deal on a on a simple daily level with that magnitude of change? Well, I can say what works for me. I think that we do need change. We know that our increasingly materialistic Western lifestyle is actually not making us any happier. When we look at the prevalence of mental health issues, and just this morning I heard about yet another beautiful, bright young woman who took her life last week. Mm. And it's absolutely heartbreaking. So whatever story we're inhabiting right now, it's not working for an awful lot of people. And so change is necessary. And I hope that we can do this the easy way. I would love it if we could just wake up and go, oh, my gosh, what have we been thinking? We need to do things in a very different way if we're really going to be happy and thriving um, and have a happy or have a thriving planet as well. But I think we may need some really bumpy times ahead to wake mm. us up because things aren't quite bad enough yet. You know, we're kind of comfortably numb in too many ways. Things are just about okay. We keep hoping that we can just muddle through with things as they are. And as time goes on and we continue not making that conscious shift, or maybe I should say that shift in consciousness, then the more I think that we are actually going to need a massive existential kick in the backside to wake us up yeah it does feel like 
existentially, we are hanging on by our fingernails thinking, oh, it's all going to be all right. It's almost like being in a Hollywood movie, you know, the disaster movie. And then just at the end, the hero comes and everything's fine. But I kind of feel like this is an open ended movie here and we don't know the outcome. And it's how do we sustain ourselves? Joanna Macy talks a lot about you must create community. And I know you're one for that as well. And I just wondered if you could say something about what that means to you. Yeah, well, just going back to your point about waiting for the hero to swoop in at the, you know, at 11.59, just as <laughs> everything's about to explode. I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think that's quite a dangerous hope or expectation. And it's making me think a lot of people think that we can technologize our way out of these challenges. And I would not want to bet my life on that. I think that's a very dangerous wager to make. I do think that if we all work together, if we collaborate, I think we can find many different solutions through this because there isn't going to be one magic bullet that's going to just solve everything. We need lots of people coming together, even the the brightest person in the world, if Einstein was still alive, or the most visionary change leader, no one person can fix these very complex, interconnected, so-called wicked problems. It's just Mm. too complicated. There are too many aspects to it. So I really believe that there's a reason that each and every one of us is alive at this time. I think we, each and every one of us has something unique, a unique gift or perspective based on our own upbringing, our life experiences, that is part of this puzzle that we need to solve right now. And I really, ha- I, you know, I get frustrated with our education system that doesn't always make people feel important and valued. I think one of the, the issues for me is the fact, you know, we're taught in such a linear way. You know, life goes in a straight line. That's it. Off you go, off the end of the conveyor belt into goodness knows what. And it's sort of not a very comfortable feeling. I always get the feeling like we're kind of all perched on this conveyor belt. That's the image that comes to me. And off we go. We've got no choice. But I personally like to look at the whole concept of consciousness and our life as a as a being in the round or it being in a an evolutionary cycle. And I think for me, that helps me to feel more connected with the possibility of evolution rather than just going in a straight line and falling off the end of the precipice. And that's how I feel that our the, the sort of the social message or the media message is very much linear. And I, and I just wondered where you did you talk about things like the evolutionary process of consciousness in the book? I do. Yes, I It's one of our many cognitive biases and fallacies that we tend to assume that the past is going to be a good guide to the future. We tend to like to believe in incremental linear change, maybe because it gives us a a sense of security that we think that the future is predictable. But history, I mean, even my own personal history really illustrates that change is not a smooth process, that there are certain and sudden quantum leaps and I think Mm. we're going to be heading for one of those within the next few years I'm feeling and 
that's what we need. And it could be turbulent and surprising, but so necessary because to mention Einstein again, you know, he said that we can't solve problems from the level of consciousness that created them. You yeah. have to go to a higher level. And this also comes through in the Kabbalah and other teachings mm -hmm. that you need to get a higher vantage point. You need to be able to see the bigger picture. So for me, what the shift in consciousness means is seeing that bigger picture, bigger in terms of space, but also longer in terms of time. And it's also shifting or rebalancing from our very brain head centered cognitive approach to the world to a more heart centered intuitive or if you prefer to keep mm. it in the brain like right hemisphere way of looking at things a more holistic way of looking at the world and our future yeah and also maybe you know also being aware of the generational thing which you know i i always love the, the whole concept of how leonardo eventually thought of the helicopter but the time wasn't right for the helicopter to manifest. And he had to wait generations for the time and the and the science and all the, the physics and all the understanding to be at that right point for people to create this helicopter. And I'm wondering about the power of thought and a part of the collective. And the more that we contribute to a positive collective, Maybe we won't see it in our lifetime, but it's it's that it follows along the um, Native American Indians making a decision for seven generations in the future. That's in this moment. And, and I just wonder if that's something that you've played with as well, that sort of thought. Absolutely. Although I think I, I want to take it in a slightly different direction. Um, the way that I look at it in the book, for quite a while, I've been thinking, how does change really happen and there is growing evidence that it, it feels like science and spirituality are almost meeting up having heads off in opposite directions hundreds of years ago it feels like they've now sort of gone all the way around the world and they're meeting up around the back again and there is growing evidence and I, I just briefly summarize some of this in the book or give a few examples that the material world is unlikely to be all that there is, that there is something like what Rupert Sheldrake calls the morphogenetic field, that we have this collective consciousness as humans. Of course, we each have our individual consciousness as well, but it seems really likely to me. We've got so many anomalies of people who are able to perceive things across time or space, and there's no rational materialist explanation for that and I've become really fascinated by supposing this is true supposing that there is this collective consciousness then it means that whatever each one of us does to evolve our own individual consciousness it contributes to the collective consciousness rising it's like a rising tide lifts all boats to use a good mm. maritime metaphor so that's, again, coming back to the title of the book, The Ocean in a Drop. Everything that, that we do individually contributes to the collective. No effort that we make is ever wasted. And I really hope that any 
burned out eco warriors out there might take some comfort from that that when we look at the the metrics and it looks like everything is still heading in the wrong direction all of the bad metrics are still going up and all of the good metrics mm. are, are going down I really believe or maybe this is just my story to keep myself feeling positive but I do believe that in the realm of consciousness it really is making a difference does that make yeah. sense completely makes sense to me I just think there's far more at play than we understand and I think yes. that's great mystery at work isn't it and we can get lost in the the drama of the moment and it does look pretty bleak and a lot well globally it looks pretty bleak but I do feel there's something far more far more something at play and it's I don't even have the language actually for it maybe it is consciousness and maybe there is this we are being called for a, a jump in our understanding and our connection to the divine or whatever we want to call it or something bigger than us. And I think that's been the thing for me that as a certainly in the Western culture, we've lost connection with this something greater or God or whatever you want to call it. And I just wondered if that made sense to you as well. It does. I think there is absolutely an invitation in these times. And, you know, I think the Buddhists and the Taoists, they tend to be less quick to label experiences as good or bad. And this is something that I've learned from the rowing as well, that on the Atlantic, pretty much everything that could go wrong did. Like all four of my oars broke and the satellite phone broke and quite a lot of other things as well. The weather was terrible. I got injured. It was just so hard. And at the time, I thought, wow. I'm learning so much despite all of these things that have gone wrong. And it took me a good 10 years for the penny to drop and for me to realise that I'd learned so much because of all of the things that had gone wrong. That if it had been a beautiful, smooth crossing with nothing breaking and no injuries and no problems, I wouldn't have learned anywhere near as much as I did. So even when I say that I think there are bumpy times ahead, I call this the gift of hard times. I think that if we are put through trials, you know, it's like the hero's journey. It's through going into the innermost cave, through those trials and tribulations, that the hero has a breakthrough, learns something new, has a, his own shift in or her own shift in consciousness and comes back with a gift, a boon for their community. I think it's only by being tested that I have learned what I'm capable of mm. and I think that it's only by going through some pretty choppy waters that humanity is going to find out what's really important and what we collectively are capable of. Yes I, and for me it's, it's sort of like listening to so many stories people's stories in my life of mm. horrendous loss and mm. grief and then they kind of after a time of grieving and mourning and whatever we need to do they often come out the other side determined to help other people in this situation because that's what's woken them up and that's happened in my own life through my own two ex really strong losses I've experienced in my life but it sort of made me join the human race as a real person and that's what gives me hope and the incredible tenacity of the human spirit. And that's what I put my faith in. Because I Absolutely. think for me, I, I don't know anybody who's not been through some pretty grim stuff to come out actually, as you say, just a better person. 
Yeah, we hear a lot about post-traumatic stress, but there is also a phenomenon called post-traumatic growth. And there's a book about this called What Doesn't Kill Us? And the psychiatrist who wrote it worked with the survivors of the Herald of Free Enterprise, the ferry disaster, when hundreds of people died. And it was very traumatic for the survivors. The scenes that they'd witnessed really left scars. But six months further down the line, a lot of them were saying they were actually so grateful for the experience because it had really woken them up to what's important in life. They found that they were much clearer about how they wanted to spend their time and who they wanted to spend it with. And in a strange way, they were actually grateful for this awful thing that had happened to them. Yeah, that, that's what I think happens, actually. And, and maybe this is what's happening consciously or unconsciously now is what are our values? What really gives us love? And I, it, I think it all does come down to love, doesn't it? It's sort of like, well, what do we love? What are our values? What do we want to contribute? Who are we in all of this? And how can we come together to create? It's it's that wonderful adage, um, the, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And it's about, for me, I think these days is about putting me aside as much as I can and actually joining forces with other people who really do want to contribute something better to this world for the future generations. Because it's not for my generation anymore. It's actually for my grandchildren. Yeah, I think this is going to be part of the shift that's happening is from this very individualistic phase that we've been going through, uh, particularly here in the UK since the 1980s, the emphasis really has been on it's up to you to make it as an individual. And if that means treading on toes and stabbing in backs, then, you know, that's just the, the law of the jungle. That's just what it takes. I think there's going to be a swing back to a much more collective way of looking at things and realising that the greatest security that we can have is in our communities. One of the sayings that has been really a, a touchstone for me for, oh gosh, nearly 20 years now, has been the statement of the Hopi elders. And it includes like, know your garden, know your water, know your community, like who is here with you? And I, I really think that these themes are going to become so much more important. And who knows, maybe one of the upsides of COVID, I think a lot of people actually did get to know their neighbours better because they weren't all just scurrying off to the commuter train and yeah. heading off to work. And mm. also more people moved out of the cities and in smaller communities. So I think that's a, a trend that's already underway. Yeah. I mean, the one thing that I'm, I feel personally about is is that we, we've all been complicit for decades and major decisions that's been taken on our behalf and which have no idea about, for example, major conglomerates, oil and gas, destruction of the rainforests. And, you know, there's so many to mention. There's too many to mention, actually. And, you know, sure, we get out in the streets and we demonstrate, which is great because it brings us together. But nothing seems to change. And so how do we go beyond this outrage that we all of us feel when we're not listened to? 
That's a really great question. Um, it was Richard Rohr, the Franciscan priest, who said that evil hides much more easily in systems and big organisations. Yeah, I went through a stage of doing a lot of research about what's happening in the Arctic, where climate change is really hitting so much harder than at these other latitudes. And I spoke to a lot of people from big oil companies and they were not evil people. You know, they're not <laughs> intending to destroy the world, but because they're part of the big corporate machine and they only see their little piece, it's hard for them to really see what the collective mm -hmm. impact of that is. But I stay optimistic that as, as individuals start looking at the bigger picture, as, as they awaken to what's happening in the world and start asking more inconvenient questions, that the shift mm. will happen. And of course, I would love to personally, and having worked for some very large companies and felt like a very small cog in a very big machine, we know that people who work in small companies or work for themselves tend to be much happier. The stats on employee disengagement and mm. something like 85% of the people surveyed across 48 countries, I think, by Gallup, 85% of people are either disengaged or actively disengaged, meaning that they were actually trying to undermine their employer. And I find that really heartbreaking, such a waste of human potential when you've got so many billions of human hours being wasted just looking at, at the clock or waiting for retirement. Yeah. So I would love it if there was a, a shift to small is beautiful. And that mm. might be messy as we go along. But I'm curious to see if that's going to be one of the manifestation of this shift. That's an, a story in act of changing, isn't it? I mean, that's what your book is about. It's how do we change the story? And I guess by each one of us, taking action because that's what it's about in our way that does change the story then the more of us can create a story that works for us absolutely what does it mean to be a human being in the 21st century I don't think it's about shopping and I, don't, I don't think it's about paying into our pension plans I think there's going to be a real shift in that and I hope that it's going to include the recognition that we are inextricably linked with nature, that mm. the fate of this planet and the faith of the fate of humanity are inseparable. Yeah. I, it's, it's not that we need to look after nature, like we are nature, we eat it, we drink it, we breathe it. Something like 50% of our, what we think is our body is actually non-human DNA. You know, it's, it's viruses and bacteria and, all of these, like we're, we're walking colonies. So it's quite an outdated narrative that we are individuals. Um, <laughs> it, yes. There's so many different ways of, of looking at the world. And I love it that science is supporting this disruption, like this um, creative destruction of the story of what it means to be an individual human being. It's huge what this is all about, isn't it? I mean, it's just an, it's just vast and it makes me think. And I know after we, we end our conversation, I shall be deep in thought. <laughs> and I, I just want to finish by saying I absolutely love how Sharon Blackie describes you as someone who has a ferocious refusal to give in to despair. 
<laughs> I just I thought that was just perfect because you know I do know you a bit Ros and you are the shining example of I'm not going down that hole so just to end just to give a, um, the listener just something to hang on to that could just help them in their daily the into the daily understanding of coping with these huge times of change mm. just before I answer that and bless Sharon Blackie for her kind words. Of course, I also have down days. I mean, I think if someone doesn't have days when they feel that deep sense of existential angst over the future of the world or fury at the corporations that are doing this or whatever, then I think we're not paying attention. So, of course, I have down days. But what has really helped me, and this comes to the answer to your question, I have found a way to feel like I have the power to make a difference, that I have some agency in this, whether that is by the what I choose to buy or more often to not buy or the way that I vote or the messages that I put out there or what I choose to read and the people I choose to associate with and what I choose to put my attention on. I actually feel like this is really, really important is where do you put your attention? Because what we put our attention on is what we tend to get more of. And it's very easy to get caught up in the relentless news cycle or the bad news cycle and to put our energy into all of this angst over what's happening in Ukraine or the Amazon or whatever. And that really brings our emotional energy levels down. And it's really hard to be an agent for positive change from that place. So even though I try and obviously stay informed about the troubling things that are happening in our world, I choose to put my energy on the positive vision of what can be. I choose to hang out with cool, interesting, future-facing people like you, Sue, and (laughs) to keep reminding myself that even though it may seem to me that any difference I make is so teeny tiny as to be almost invisible, I am still making a difference with everything that I think and say and do. On that level of consciousness, I am making a difference. And that is a big responsibility, but also, wow, what a blessing to feel that everything that we do every day or even the things that we don't do, the acts of omission, it is all making a difference. And it may not be visible yet, but it will come into physical manifestation in due course. And just having that sense of agency helps to keep me positive. What a perfect place to end. Thanks so much, Ros. It's been an absolute pleasure, Sue. Thank you so much. That was Ros Savage, truly an inspirational visionary for us all. And if you want to find out more about Ros or her book, or to book her to speak at your organisation, just visit her website, rossavage.com. And her beautiful book, Ocean in a Drop, is available on Amazon. My February guest is William Peters, founder of Shared Crossing and author of At Heaven's Door, What Shared Journeys to the afterlife teach about dying well and living better and 
I think you will be blown away by what he has to say. See you then. Bye for now.